So our readings tonight tell us a story how God being committed to his sovereign design, like just kind of feel that for a minute, a second here or two, God being committed to his sovereign design and plan rescued his people. And he gave them a new name and then through this people, he raised up Jesus, brought him into the world. Through Jesus, he then redeems the whole world, not just the Jews who are in captivity, but all the world, the Gentiles included. And he looks into the future and he sees what his church would need and then he gives them gifts to enable us to work with him both in the church and in the world. That is essentially the story that our readings tell us tonight. But that's not enough to capture the emotional, psychological, spiritual backdrop that we read about in Isaiah and this whole business of having a new name. For that maybe, for those of you who are old enough can think back to the 70s and that mini series called Roots and probably you remember the famous name Kunta Kente. And maybe you can remember that scene where he's hanging by a rope and all the slaves in the community are around him and the slave master's chief slave has this huge bull whip in his hands and he's whipping Kunta Kente's back saying, what's your name? And he keeps trying to tell him, you are not Kunta Kente, you are, anybody remember? Toby. And finally, kind of whipped into submission, he finally, you may remember his foot's already been chopped off. Remember that? Everybody thought that was gonna be like the grossest part of that scene. Because he tried to run away, this was his fourth time, and he'd been caught all four times because he always had this deep fear that if he didn't get away that he was gonna lose his heritage. And losing his heritage was like worse than dying. So it wasn't like he was just being like disobedient for the sake of being disobedient. He had this pathological fear that he was gonna stop being himself if he took on this culture and this name, Toby. So they cut his foot off and you kind of think, God, that's gonna be the grossest part of this thing. And then they hang him and they start whipping him until he finally agrees to accept this new name, this new identity from his slave master, and he becomes Toby. The slave master walks away and says, and it'll be your name for the rest of your life. That's how Israel felt. So we sing these, you know, songs of deliverance, and we, you know, read these passages about being given a new name, but Israel felt utterly and completely cut off from her memory and actually wondered, could I ever be anything ever again? Like Kunta Kente in that moment, you know, all the glory of his African heritage, the splendor of his family name all disappears and he suffers this kind of profound death. And this is what Israel is like when we read in our passage tonight, they're wondering how can one ever reclaim their rightful identity? Some of us are even worse off because some of us have never even discovered an identity. 
it's true that most people go through life never feeling understood. And I'd, let, I'd bet my last dollar that 60 or 70% of the people in this room routinely feel misunderstood. And feel like no one really gets me. I'm not sure I get my identity. And I'm certainly not sure that the vast majority of the people around me get me. Well, this is the, the emotional, psychological, spiritual underpinning of what we read tonight, but the dominant story that lays over that is this concept or this pattern of God who saves his people. He did it in the Exodus from Egypt. He liberates them from Babylon finally. We see the ultimate freedom in the cross and resurrection. And so this becomes like a, a grid that we can put over not just scripture but our lives that says that God is creating a people for himself and for a purpose. But Israel's not in touch with this as we read the Isaiah passage tonight. She's known as the unfaithful wife, forlorn, cast off, the morale in Israel at this time is humble, full of broken dreams, crumbling faith. And in the face of all this, they're wondering, is God now powerless to fulfill his promises to carry out his plan? Like, have we blown it so bad this time that we really are stuck with this name? Desolate, forlorn, divorced. Like, you know, we've had sex outside of marriage too many times, God's not gonna go for it again. We've committed infidelity with idols and other gods too many times, God's not gonna go for it again. I mean, is it possible that this will happen again? And so they move, the whole business of this new name is they move from being deserted, despised, divorced, and this is a big deal because in that culture, that was a life-threatening condition. A lot of times when we read the story of Jesus with the woman at the well, we miss this. That that's not a story about sex. That's not a story about the woman who was routinely having sex with, you know, like she's not like a, what do they call it? A, it's not like serial monogamy, you know? Or no, what do they call it? The other thing, serial non-monogamy. She's, she's not in trouble because she's slept with, you know, six guys in her life. That's not what's going on. What's going on is she has no hope for any kind of security. A woman without a man in that culture was never safe, was never secure. That's not a story about sex. That was about, that's a story about a woman trying to secure herself outside of the goodness of the rule and reign of God and doing whatever she had to do to secure herself. And it's actually a gospel passage that says, woman, you don't have to do that anymore. You come follow me and you will be safe. So what Israel is feeling is something like this. What if you had a tragic disease and no medical insurance? That's what they were feeling, completely unprotected. Like we've got this fatal disease and we got no medical insurance. What are we gonna do? So God says, well, I'm gonna give you a new name. You're gonna become my delight, a crown, you know. Now you know why we get, now you know where we get that dopey lyric a royal diadem, right? How many times you've sung that hymn going, what the heck is a royal diadem? Well, now you know. It's, uh, it's like a wreath, crown, symbol kind of thing that shows royalty. And so you'll be this crown in God's hand and that God will be rejoicing and delighting over you as you re-engage with him in a cooperative friendship. 
And I just wonder if you can actually hear that tonight. I mean, I, I seriously wonder how much of an American sort of Christian residue sits on our hearts and minds so that we actually don't really grasp this. That what God's really after in my little life and in our life collective as a, you know, growing little church here, Holy Trinity, that what he's actually after is a cooperative friendship that what he's actually after is we're just, we're up to something together. And, and the beauty of that, but I think we so often, our default position is that, but, is, but I'm busy. And so I have to fit God in the sort of cracks of my life. Like if we were in elementary school, we'd fit God in at recess, right? Because the rest of the time we're busy. You know, maybe we, you know, fit him in a little bit at lunchtime or something. I don't mean that in like a, like a guilt trip sort of way. This is a no guilt zone. We don't do guilt here. I'm talking about in an imaginative way. Like, do we really get that what God's after is to join us back together with him that we then become his cooperative friends? And there's the word that we've talked about many times over the last few months appears in this passage again, this notion of hesed of God's covenant love, this notion that he's not gonna relent in his love for us no matter what we do until his will's done. As I say, until he has a people who really are his cooperative friends, seeking to live lives of constant creative goodness through the power of the Holy Spirit for the sake of others. So the psalmist then, if you wanna look at your psalm, what the psalmist is doing here is they're worshiping. The psalmist is doing what here, what Andy and Travis were just helping us do. They were helping Israel respond to being loved and saved. And so they say things like, your love, Lord, is exquisite. It's priceless. Well, what makes it priceless? We thought we were Toby. How's Toby gonna upend that system of power? As Soon as he says, no, I'm Kunta Kente, here comes the beatings again. And so they're thinking there's just no way that this can happen, but when they see it actually happen, they begin to see that God's love for us is extremely exquisite, it's priceless. I love the way Eugene gets this in the message. God's love is meteoric, his loyalty astronomic, his purpose titanic, his verdicts oceanic. Yet in his largeness, nothing gets lost. Not a man, not a mouse, slips through the cracks of God's love. So our Corinthians passage then is not a little controversy dropped into our readings, a little controversy dropped into the lectionary to, you know, a little Pentecostal controversy or a little charismatic controversy. No, once you see that you're becoming God's people and once you see that you, you are actually, as the New Testament says, ambassadors of God's kingdom, as soon as, or in my words, as soon as you go otherly, as soon as you start noticing the places of pain and injustice in the world, you're gonna wish very much you had one of these gifts. Or that one of these gifts would come to you in that moment, to put it more precisely. So if election is for a purpose, what this passage in Paul tells us is that everybody gets in on it. And we get in on it through these gifts of the Spirit. And so Paul says, if you look at your passage there, I don't want you to be uninformed about this. 
So putting it the other way around, or well, yeah, I don't want you to be uninformed. So putting it the other way around, that uninformed or optional, seeing these gifts as optional is not good. What Paul wants is the church to be knowledgeable and informed. Now I've been around the block long enough and have consulted and spoken in virtually every aspect of Christianity there is. I've spoken and consulted in Baptist circles and Presbyterian circles and Lutheran circles and just any circle you can be in, I've been in it. And here's what I know. For most people, this life in the spirit that's commended to us here does sit in our imaginations as optional. That, well, you know, some Christians have that and we call them charismatics. Or some Christians have that and we call them Pentecostals. But what Paul's after here is something the exact opposite of that. I mean, I don't like this phrase, but just playfully speaking, if Paul could ever know that his letter to the Corinthians was being used to divide the church into denominations, he would turn over in his grave. Bad theology there, but you get the picture, right? The last thing that Paul would want to think is that he's creating division by saying to people, these are just the capacities that God gives you. The, the Greek word there is charismata. It's where we get the word charismatic or charismatic people or charismatic churches. So if you can, picture a whiteboard or a blackboard and picture me writing up there, charis, C-H-R-I-S, mata. And then divide that word in two, charis, the basic Greek word for grace. Mata as a suffix there means something like a um, little portion of. So really all the grace, all the, all the uh, gifts are, are gracelets. They're little portions of God's grace that the text goes on to say he manifests in the church. And that Greek term there for manifest is beautiful. It's phanerosis. And it comes out of the art world and puppeteering in particular, and it means the dancing hand of God. And so in this particular passage, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, the interpretive key is where Paul says, when you gather, because in this passage he says, when you gather, I didn't count it up again tonight, but seven, eight, nine times, I can't remember. He says, when you gather. So a little different than in the lists in Ephesians of offices, a little different than the list of gifts in Romans, because he's picturing a body of people gathered and here's what he's picturing. The dancing hand of God moving over the congregation and enabling people to do things that are edifying to the whole body. So he says, well, one of you has a gift of a word of knowledge and one of you has a prophecy and another one has a gift of faith. And so this is a very imaginative passage. So why be scared? These are just little gracelets. They're just little anointings. Little, think of the gifts as just capacities. They're just little capacities to live into what God has called us to live into. In the Old Testament period, the Spirit came on people occasionally, you know, in the building of the tabernacle, the building of the temple, or sometimes the, the text will say that the Spirit came on a prophet to say something in God's name. So all you're really talking about here is little capacities. There's nothing here to be afraid of. There's, we're not talking about you know, suddenly becoming crazy Pentecostals or something. These are just different kinds of ways of cooperating with God. So what I'd say is, if you don't like the turn of the century Pentecostal model, and if you don't like the 70s charismatic renewal model, 
And even if you don't like some of the more modern uh, revivals that have come after that, make Jesus your model. As we learned last week, he followed the crowds into the Jordan. He was baptized. He comes up out of the water, and who descended upon him? The third person of the Holy Trinity. Descends upon him. Jesus then lived such an astounding life through the enabling of the Spirit, saying things, teaching in ways that the people say, we've never heard anybody teach like this in our life. This is stunning in its power and clarity and authority. We've never seen anybody do the kinds of things you do. So he lives this life in the Spirit. His disciples one day ask him, Lord, what's happening with you? You go and you pray and then you come into public and we see this amazing affect and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. He gives them then what we call the Lord's Prayer. He then tells them this little parable of, of asking and seeking and knocking and persistence in prayer. And then the last little parable of this section of Luke is this. If you, fathers being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give to you the Holy Spirit if you ask? And then Jesus in Luke 24, 49 says, don't go out and do anything yet. Stay in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. And then Pentecost comes and the church is filled with the Spirit. And the church begins to march out and do her thing, cooperating. So all that's in view here is this capacity for a new way of being in the world. A way for us to get in the game. Because as soon as we get in the game, as I've said, you'll immediately see the need for gifts, for power, for authority, for those kinds of things. So then lastly tonight, if you want to look at your gospel reading, this sign that Jesus does at this wedding, this is a sign to them and to us that all of this is true and it's all coming to pass. And so when this thing happens, you know, when the wine runs out and Jesus takes this, the six stoneware water pots and, you know, calls the servants and asks them to distribute it and the waters turn to wine, it says that this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and it manifested his glory. Now that word manifest is very close to what Paul's talking about in Corinthians. It's a demonstration of who God is and, and him being at work amongst the people. And it's not meant to make us fearful. It's not meant to be off-putting. It's meant to be the opposite. It's meant to make people feel secure that God is working against us. I mean, sorry, uh, in our midst. <laughs> Whichever you like. Andrew, could we use tomorrow morning's sermon instead of this one for the podcast? Now, as important as these signs are, they don't work when they are seen as just little spiritual stories. Have you ever known people who have that view of the Bible? Like, well, this doesn't have to actually be true. There didn't have to actually be six water pots, you know, up on the stairs of the temple, and they didn't have to actually take them down. It's, it's just sort of the beauty of the spirituality that's in that story. You ever heard people talk about the Bible that way? We can't have it both ways. How would that be a sign? It's only a sign if you're seeing the manifest power of God. And look at your text. It says, and his followers believed him. Because they saw a concrete sign. You know how I've playfully said to you that if you're gonna read the New Testament um, well, 
you have to read it knowing that they were at least as smart as you are. I don't care how many advanced degrees you have, these people were at least as smart as you were. They know there's between water and wine. And they know there's between good wine and bad wine. Something happened here that got the place abuzz. There was a manifestation of God. And so his followers didn't see some sort of spiritual truth. They saw what actually happened and they believed in him. That is to say they placed their confidence in him so that they could follow him. So I said tonight when we started that our readings tell us a story. And I wanna conclude by saying that in my humble opinion, for whatever it's worth to you tonight in your considerations, that I actually think that much of what's going wrong in Christianity today can be explained by the loss of this story. And it gets replaced with all kinds of other stories, denominational stories, um, church growth stories, going to heaven when you die stories. It gets replaced with all kinds of other things. And when that happens, we get a loss of identity. And we get a loss of identity because of this loss of context. You will only seek transformation into Christ's likeness. And you will only seek to be his cooperative friend through the power of the Holy Spirit if you really understand and believe that this is the story that God has pulled me into. There was a kind of a, a writer of piety, kind of holiness author um, in the horse and buggy era um, who had to go into town. And he had a little like three or four year old boy you know, in these days, if you're going into town, you got cleaned up, right? So he says to little Jedediah, you know, Jedediah, go in the house and change clothes. We're going into town. So Jedediah goes in and he puts on his, you know, best clothes and dad's fussing around doing whatever he's doing. Jedediah gets impatient waiting and goes out and falls into a mud pile. He's all dirty. And this writer says, so the father picked him up and he cleaned him off picked him up and administered some grace to him. You might even say made him holy. If you want to use biblical imagery, you might even say he was washed in the blood. But that's not the end of the story. Dad's still going to town. Dad is up to something. Dad doesn't just pick us up and clean us off. God wants us to be part of him in this little buggy ride into town doing whatever it is that God's doing. That's what this story tells us. And so the gifts are simply a way of us being with God in that. And when we can see this story, you can see how then it puts a little different spin on words like repent and words like believe. So I wonder tonight as we just have a little moment of quiet here. Again, if you look at your gospel reading, you can see that the the miracle happens around these words. Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever it is he tells you. So as we have a moment to sit here now, you might ask yourself, am I seeing some signposts in my life? Are there some ways that God is wanting to manifest himself to me and what would it be like, what would it feel like to just do whatever it is he tells you to do?
ね。